right. So again, please feel free to ask questions during this. Um, I tried to do some kind of representative cases of what I see in clinic and what some of you may have seen. Up a little bit. You can hang it here, I guess. Okay. So um, one thing I wanted to say for the new treaters, uh, you definitely, this is a great time to treat. I think you'll see in this session that it's actually quite simple to provide um, high quality hep C care to people who've never been treated before. And then there's cases where you may want to refer because it's a bit more complicated, but um, we'll try to help you under, you know, differentiate those cases. So it's a great time to start treating, it really is. So I'm gonna discuss, um, I'm not gonna discuss the hep C that much. So um, these are my disclosures. So. Um, this is what the goals of this session are. We're going to talk about um, when to do hep C resistance, some other diagnostic strategies, talk about treatment, how to treat treatment-naive patients. Probably, yeah, because I keep turning my head that way. We'll talk a lot about treatment and how to choose treatment, and then we um, will sort of talk about the advantages and limitations of each regimen. So I... Um, I am a member of the guidelines. I'm currently one of the IDSA co-chairs. Um, there's also a set of easel guidelines, which is the European Society. Both, I think both are very useful. Um, and as we said, they can kind of help you make decisions in some of the situations you'll encounter less commonly. I think for some of the very common ones, it's, you know, you probably can just remember them, but then there's always those cases that um, are a little less straightforward. So I'm going to start out by asking a question about screening. So which of the following patients does the CDC currently recommend should be offered HCV testing? Okay, which ones, based on the current recommendation, should be tested? Um, a 45-year-old woman on hemodialysis, a 54-year-old Midwestern man with normal liver enzymes, a 33-year-old pregnant woman from Egypt, a 41-year-old man with HIV acquired through sex, all of the above all but two and three, or all but number three. So what does the CDC recommend? Two of these people should be tests for hepatitis. The correct answer, oh, why didn't it show? Oh, back up. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't give you time, okay. There it is, so all the others. So most people thought all of those should be screened, and but the correct answer was all but number three. So it's currently, <laughs> not, we, know who, we know who put that now. Um, so the, the CDC does not recommend testing pregnant women, nor do they currently recommend testing people from endemic areas, although I think we could think that made sense. So why did you why did you choose that? Because of the Egypt or because of the pregnant? No, because I I Okay. But you put the pregnant the, so so I think pe there's reasons some people would test um, people who are from Egypt because it's endemic. Hep C is very endemic in Egypt. And then also pregnant women, um, the AASLD IDSA guidelines now recommend testing all pregnant women once. 
a kind of independent of risk factor testing like is done for hep C and hep B. So currently though, the CDC does not recommend that yet. I think they're in the process of evaluating that and I hope they will also add that to their recommendations. Why test pregnant women? Um, well, I think, you know, there, I can see some of the pros and cons. The cons are that we currently can't treat a pregnant woman, right? We don't have data on the efficacy of CAAs in pregnancy yet, but I think that is being explored now. Um, it's sort of, the reason to test is um, because of what we know about the distribution of hep C now in younger people, that the incidence is, you know, has risen quite a bit in, in younger populations. So it's a way to capture young women who otherwise may not be seeking health care. And then uh, the benefit of, for pregnancy is that you may, you know, many women who are pregnant will have other children, so you can treat in between pregnancy and, and have the benefit for the next pregnancy. So that's why it was added. But these are the current recommendations for the CDC. I think everybody knows the um, baby boomer recommendation that everybody in that age group of 1940, born between 1945 and 1965 should be offered one-time hep C testing. And then of course there's all the risk-based testing as well. So here's these new recommendations about pregnant women. So within the, um, the IDSA ASLD guidelines, there are some sections on unique populations and there's a whole section on pregnancy because I know questions often come up related to hep C and pregnant women, hep C and children that you may not be quite as familiar with. So I hope that section will be useful to you. And this is just what was the recommendation about uh, one-time testing for all pregnant women for hep C and ideally at the initiation of prenatal care um, when you do the HIV and the hep B testing as well. Now, one thing I want to say about this, if you're going to do it, um, it's best to do the, the testing that has a reflex RNA, right? Because I think what part of what the OB um, doctors who express concern about adding this test on is that when they get a positive, if they don't know if the person actually has hep C or not, that creates a lot of, you know, um, anxiety in the patients and they don't know exactly how to answer the question. So if you do that antibody test with the reflex immediately to RNA for any positive antibody, you have what to do about it all in one lab test. So if the RNA is positive, you know they will eventually need treatment. If the RNA is negative, you know that they were exposed most likely um, but don't need treatment. So does that make sense? How many um, of your labs are doing reflex RNA testing? If I could get so most. I know there's been a huge push by the New York City Department of Health to get that instituted citywide and um, we're now doing it in our labs. So I think if you're, if your lab isn't doing that and you can influence that, that's a very, um, it makes a big difference in the hep C care cascade to get that RNA done immediately because there's a huge drop off in the cascade at that point. Okay, so now on to talking about treatment. So as Mike Stagg had told you, I have my little mnemonics for remembering the medications. What he didn't tell you was the super um, scientific way I have for remembering them, it, which is that the PR, it, um, in Previer stands for protease inhibitor, and that the AS and ASVIR looks like 5A backwards. That's how you can remember that. So that is usually all people remember of my talk, and yeah, you now know this. So which of the best strategies is, uh, which of the following is the best strategy for treating hep C? Using three drugs for eight weeks, two drugs for eight weeks, two drugs for 12 weeks, or three drugs for 12 weeks?
<laughs> I will leave all the commenting on song to mine. Um, so, okay, so this is one of those annoying questions where there's not really a right answer. It depends on the situation, right? But all of these are potential options, except I will say we don't usually do the three drugs for eight weeks. Usually when we use that three drug combination of um, sofosbuvir, patasvir, voxileprevir, we, we use it for 12 weeks because it's usually in retreatment, which we will talk about later. But for initial treatment, um, actually, um, you know, the, those are, both of the choices are possible, and we'll talk about that. So these are the currently um, used combinations of DEAs, and you can see that these different categories are just um, pieced together. We have the nukes, the NS5A inhibitors, the protease inhibitors, and then, well, there was one regimen that is not used as much anymore that has a non-nuke in it. So why nukes versus non-nukes, just theoretically? Um, so we know, we talk about, for, I saw a lot of you are HIV providers, and that's awesome. The nukes sparing uh, regimens for HIV we use in certain situations, right? We often use it when people have renal insufficiency or because of drug-drug interactions or maybe toxicity. Um, for hep C, some of those same reasons. The main one would be renal. So sofosbuvir, the only available nuke is renally cleared, uh, you should use it with a creatinine clearance above 30. So we tend to um, use nuke sparing in that situation. That's probably the most common. These are all the different approved drugs, and you can see there um, some, there are actually two regimens now that are uh, co-formulated that are pangenotypic, and we'll talk quite a bit about using these pangenotypic regimens. So let's go through what the guidelines recommend as sort of the four main options for initial treatment. Um, um, so the first is elbasvir or grisepravir, um, and you'll see that there's sort of some themes across the top of this and then the bottom half. So um, all of these are, all four of these that I'm going to discuss are co-formulated. This one is in a single tablet. tablet. It's given for 12 weeks for genotype 1 or 4. You, or we'll talk about when to do resistance testing with this regimen briefly. It contains a protease inhibitor, and one thing, um, this is one common Thing across the top that if you are using a hepatitis C protease inhibitor, you do not want to use it in decompensated patients. Um, so you want to be very uh, clear you understand what their stage of liver disease and that you're going to use one of those. It can be used in CKD, however, and then there's some drug-drug interaction issues. We'll talk a little bit more about drug-drug interactions a little bit later. Um, and then the other um, one that is up here on the top that is also has the same issue of having a protease inhibitor um, and is, um, can be used in renal patients. It's glicoprevir pibrantisvir. Um, that one's also once daily. This one has three tablets that you give with food, um, and it, the duration depends on cirrhosis or no cirrhosis. So eight weeks without cirrhosis, 12 weeks of cirrhosis. Uh, and um, like I said, the issue if we're having a protease inhibitor. And then the bottom half, these are the ones that have the nuke in it. Um, so we have lidipusvir, sofosbuvir, sofosbuvir, velpatosvir. They're very similar, um, except that sofosbuvir, velpatosvir is pangenotypic. So pangenotypic regimens over here, not pangenotypic on that side, um, can use in renal disease, can use in patients with liver disease, more extensive liver disease. So the, the bottom half are the, the regimens that we use in patients who may be de decompensated. Yes? Uh-huh. Oh, so let me go through the brand names really quick. So true. Zapatier, 
Mavirat, Harvoni, Epclusa. Okay, what do you prefer I use? Brand names, everyone? Where, is Donna out of the room? If Donna's out of the room, I can use the brand names. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. It's okay. I will, when she comes back in, I'll say why I'm using brand names. I have no problem using brand names, and I know it, it helps people. Um, the only reason to kind of, in this slide, that maybe it's helpful to think about the drug classes is for remembering that about the protease inhibitors, right? Protease inhibitors, no protease inhibitors. It is useful to know. So when you see one of those previors, you have a protease inhibitor, be careful with decompensated patients or even the patients, you know, who are kind of on the edge like that Marianne talked about. Um, if they're cirrhotic, you really want to know kind of how well their liver is functioning. Um, and then if you have sephosphavir, you need to worry about renal disease, creatinine clearance to be above 30. Other than that, we can use brand names. Okay. So there were a lot of scenarios that uh, Mike was kind of talking to that were challenging previously, but I think, you know, we now have cure rates using these regimens that are above 95%. So we're doing really well. I'm not saying there's never a very hard to treat patient. When you put a lot of those categories together, you end up, you know, with, I would say, a, a challenging situation where you may be more likely to see a relapse. And in those cases, what I try to do is really focus on adherence, make sure that you don't have any medications on board that might be lowering the levels of the DAAs, like the, some of the acid-reducing agents, and just try to do everything else you can to optimize the patient's um, care. So let's get into our first case. So this is where you're going to have to vote, so have your um, phones ready. So this is a 26-year-old Caucasian woman with hepatitis C genotype 1B, no cirrhosis. Her hep C RNA is 1.2 million international units. Her hep C was diagnosed during her last pregnancy, or someone did screening, and her risk factor was intravenous drug use. Last use was 26 months ago. She's treatment naive, her fibrosures F0, and her other medical history includes she has a seizure disorder and she's on Keppra. There, I used the brand name. Um, so which of the following regimens would not be recommended for this patient with hep C genotype 1 without cirrhosis? So she has genotype 1B, no cirrhosis. Okay, so Sofelvox, which is um, Bosevi, Sofelpadosphir, Epclusa, Sofelodiposphir, Hervoni, or GP, which is Mavirat. Which of those regimens would not be recommended? I'm starting you out easy. Okay, these are going to get harder, too. Oh, I'm sorry. I keep thinking I'm going to activate it. Okay, wrap it up. Yep. Okay, so people paid attention to what I said. We usually don't use that for treatment-naive patients. That was studied, by the way, and for genotype 1B, it would work. But there was really no advantage to using it over, so it was compared to sofvalpatosphere um, for 12 weeks, and it does add a little bit of extra side effects in terms of gastrointestinal side effects, and so we, you know, since there's no benefit in this, and it was actually, you know, you wouldn't want to necessarily want to use that for genotype 1A, that shortened course. Um, for that reason, it was reserved for treatment experience patients, and I think that makes sense. We have really good other options. Let's save that for when we really need it. So good job. So the minimum things you need to know pre-treatment are listed here. Um, so of course, genotype, subtype, although that's getting a little 
less important now that we have pangenotypic regimens, and I think people are studying strategies where you don't even need to check that for initial treatment. Um, sometimes we'll look for resistance, we'll get to that. We, very important though is that cirrhosis, yes or no answer, okay? That one is something we cannot skimp on, we've talked about why. Um, we, you need to know whether they had prior treatment, of course, uh, what medications they're on because of the drug interactions issues, and we'll get to that. What comorbid some of the comorbidities may affect um, what you use, or, and um, life expectancy, it, there's, you know, some thought if you're, the life expectancy is less than one year and, uh, and it's due to non-liver causes, this may not be worthwhile thing to take on right now as the hep C treatment. But other than that, people should all be treated. Uh, patient preference, the childbearing potential if there's ribavirin, and there is this helpline in New York that um, if you ever need help, you can call. You can also email me. I do like mini consults through the um, AIDS Education Training Center that so if you have questions. And I think another good thing about this is like as you, you know, there was a lot of ranges of experience and just meeting people here and having people you can bounce things off of um, as well. I think it's all really helpful to have this hep C community of, of people treating. I certainly email people, usually PharmDs I find to be <laughs> the most helpful. Um, who can give me advice about really complicated drug interaction issues. So here are the regimens that are recommended for genotype 1B. You can see some are eight weeks, some are 12 weeks in her situation where there's no cirrhosis. Cirrhotic, everybody gets 12 weeks, so easy to remember. So no cirrhosis, some allow eight weeks, cirrhosis, 12 weeks. So let's go on. So, um, so she's prescribed sofosfivir or lidipasvir. Um, and for eight weeks. So question here, true or false, resistance testing should be performed prior to treatment. Do you need to do resistance testing prior to treatment with this eight-week regimen? Yes or no? Who thinks true, who thinks false? We can start voting. Oh, they can vote, okay, awesome. wrap it up. So most people know that you don't need to do resistance testing in this case. So in fact, for genotype 1B, we never need to do resistance testing for initial treatment. 1A is the situation where we'll do it if we're going to use um, albasvir grisoplavir, okay? And um, if you never have sent a hep C resistance test, it comes back very similar to what the HIV ones come back. It'll um, give you a mutation and then it'll tell you predicted or not predicted that res uh, whether resistance is predicted. Okay, so sometimes these are a little confusing because um, if you're gonna do it for genotype 1B, one of these mutations could actually be present, right? But it actually doesn't have an impact on the outcome of treatment. So we usually don't check because you know, then you have that information and you, I think, as an HIV provider, often feel compelled to do something with it. But um, in fact, studies have clearly shown that if you, even in the presence of those mutations, genotype 1B patients will still do well. And there's nothing you're gonna modify based on that treatment. So here, um, the situation, like I said, where you would do this resistance is only this, where I have highlighted in red, the genotype 1A, if you're gonna use that alpha-sphere Is that clear? Yeah, go ahead. Uh-huh. Oh. Yeah, I don't know of any hypersusceptibilities like we see with like an M 
184B or something, yeah, no. So it's kind of, but, but the, the issue is more that if you have a very potent regimen that you're using and you have, uh, you may detect resistance, usually it's NS5A resistance you'll detect. So, so I should have said 15% of people at baseline who've never had treatment will have one of those mutations for NS5A resistance. Which mutation they have can be important for some regimens. Some of them really don't affect any regimens, but some of them do affect the less potent regimens. So um, where they become a lot more important is during retreatment. So if you've actually treated with one of those, it didn't work, you tend to enrich, the, I think, the number, the amount of virus that has the mutation, and you know, then it's more meaningful. But if someone's never been treated, for most regimens, even the presence of it won't impact. It's a little counterintuitive, but it, um, it may have to do with the fact that, I mean, it just ends up being a numbers game with drug and amount of virus, I guess. So um, this is showing you, for the albizvir gruzepavir regimen, the different, um, if you had one of these mutations that confers high-level resistance, there were only nine patients in the whole study who had it, but of those, only two were cured if they were genotype 1A. Whereas if they were genotype 1B, um, everyone was cured regardless of whether they had it or not. Everybody but one person. So meaningful for genotype 1A if you have one of those high-level mutations. But in general, you know, if you're not using that regimen, you don't have to do resistance testing for 1B or 1A for initial treatment. I want to just briefly, for the people who are new providers, go through kind of how how to approach this as a team. So um, I kind of put my contribution and then the contribution of other people on our team. So I usually work with the patient to pick the regimen and then I put in my note exactly why I wanna use what regimen I wanna use and the reasons that the person needs treatment. So if I have some supporting factors, I'll put them like the woman's childbearing potential or they have cryoglobulinemia or diabetes or something else and then I put why I want the specific regimen. So if it doesn't matter which regimen, I may put a couple of them, but if it's, you know, there's a drug interaction or something, I'll specifically list that in my note. This is just to make it easier for people who, when they're dealing with the prior authorizations, to try to justify why I may need, you know, lidibisphere, savosphere, or harvoni, particularly for this patient because of a drug interaction issue. And then I'll put, if there's a reason, there, another one can't be used, so like, this was a situation, we don't use prod much anymore, I didn't even discuss that, but there were certain ones that couldn't be used. A better example might be, um, you cannot use Mavirat with Efavirin, okay? So I would put that in the note so that when they tell them, well, the preferred is Mavirat, they'll say, well, the patient's on this, you know, I either, um, so I do all that and then I, I put that I discuss medication or interactions, I always particularly discuss whether they're on a, um, antacids or not, because I think that comes up commonly with patients. And then I'll document that whether they're not, there's barriers to adherence. So if I have, um, this I think is, I'm having to do less often in New York, but it used to have to say that you, the person had no barriers to adherence. So I would often list if their HIV was under control, that that's evidence that they can take a medication and you know things like that. I think that's coming up less. I think the New York prior authorization process has relaxed a lot. I don't know about Pennsylvania. Could anybody? I know there are a couple of Pennsylvania providers here. I don't know. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> Lucky you. For Maryland, you have to put that. 
Yeah. So, so I feel like that way I have it there if someone comes to question it. And then, um, so in my case, I work with nurses who then deal with, and they work with specialty pharmacies. I think specialty pharmacies are your friend in this process. They will do a lot of the lay work for you because they get their own benefit from it, right? They get to be, to, um, you know, this expensive medication, they get some kind of profits off of it. Um, and then um, they'll fax and they'll kind of keep track of the progress because sometimes these things just languish for weeks and then the patient kind of gets lost to follow up. So they periodically flip through who's pending and see what's going on. They stay in communication with the patient. Again, people can get, I think, very demoralized if they're waiting and um, decide it may not be worth it to do this or may try to find a different clinic or something like that. And then when they have the patient assistance programs, um, they do that. So you can see a lot of the work uh, is done by other people. And then during treatment, we usually have the medications delivered to our clinic because in New York City, you know, if people deliver this to a, a door stoop or something, a lot can go wrong with that process. And it's hard to get these medications replaced if they're lost. So we have them come back and pick up. In that point, we review any new medications. We talk about side effects again. We create a monitoring plan schedule, book the, actually book the appointments for those follow-up visits. Um, and if they can't come to our hospital to get them, we'll do their local quest lab, like say they're coming from you know, somewhere far out in Long Island or something. And then we review and usually have made them take the first dose there, review whether it should be with food or not. And this was our old monitoring plan. We had like week one, week two, week four, week eight. We, talk, we, see, we used to see people a lot. Now we've relaxed that a lot because as you know, the medications are just so well tolerated. People really don't have problems. We do a week four, and I think you know you should know if someone's when you need to do a week four, right? So if someone has Hep B and a surface antigen positive, that's a situation where you need to do a week four. I think in those situations where someone has cirrhosis, is an protease inhibitor, you're going to want to check week four, make sure their labs are okay. If someone's got some renal um, issues and is an antenophavir, and you're giving a medication that might raise the tenofovir levels, I really want to get that. I always get a week four, but we are studying strategies. So that's one of the clinical trials I have open that is just a, like, here's your medication. Good luck. Come back and see us week 24, and we'll see how it worked. That's how safe these medications are, that you can do that. So um, we actually have that study open now. So if any of you want to refer a patient, we um, it's open. The medication's provided. It's a really good study for anyone who you may be having trouble getting medication for. So if you if they have that scenario, see me at lunch, and I'll jot down your name. I'll send you the flyer for it. So, um, so yes, so monitoring, less intensive than it used to be, but I definitely like to see the week four just to know if they're undetectable or close to it. If they're not, there's a problem, right? Um, so just to summarize that case, and this is the algorithm I sort of approach in general. Um, so what's the genotype? She was 1B, so we don't have to do resistance testing. We have all four of those regimens to choose from. She's HIV negative, so we don't have to worry about those drug interactions. She didn't have cirrhosis, so we can use an eight-week regimen if she met the criteria. Her creatinine clearance is normal. Don't have to worry. We can use sofosbuvir if we want. Her medications, she was on a PPI. I didn't get into that, but um, you, you know, that's one that can have interactions with um, the lidipasvir, valpatasvir with the NS5A inhibitors. Didn't happen to have interactions with um, the ones we considered here. And then 
In terms of follow-up, remember she had re pretty recent intravenous drug use, so make sure you're doing rescreening or retesting for Hep C RNA periodically, because people who've had recent um, risk factors for acquisition are the people most likely to get reinfected and may need retreatment. And also just make sure she knows about adequate supportive services. Okay, any questions on that case? I'll go on. Okay, so case two. It's a 45-year-old African-American man who has Hep C genotype 2 and cirrhosis. His Hep C RNA is uh, about 200,000. So he's also treatment naive. He was cirrhotic based on a transient elastography measurement of 17 kilopascals. Had never decompensated. Did have an EGD if he um, had no varices. But remember, if his platelets were above 150,000, we could have foregone that EGD based on the information we had. His sono is mildly nodular, no liver cancer seen. It's important to always check for that. Other medications of interest. So he's um, got hypertension, high cholesterol. He's end-stage renal diseases on hemodialysis. Um, he has GERDs on a PPI. And then he's hep B surface antigen positive, but his DNA is negative. Okay, so he has, he has hep B, but it's inactive right now. So for genotype 2, we have two options. These are our pan-genotypic options, okay? So uh, it's the Mavirit and the Plusa. Remember, if they're not cirrhotic, the Mavirit can be eight weeks. Either way, the Plusa is 12 weeks. So pri prior to treatment, you recommend which of the following additional evaluations? Hep B genotype, Hep C resistance test, MRI to evaluate for liver cancer, transplant center referral. Okay, so I kind of tried to fool you here, and I didn't emphasize it in the um, thing, but this patient, remember, had end-stage renal disease. So you may want to have him meet with a, a renal transplant doctor prior to hep C treatment, because if he wants a kidney transplant, he will get it faster um, by, if he can use the hep C positive organ. Okay, so... Um, that was why that. The MRI to evaluate for liver cancer with the negative sono, um, you know, I wouldn't necessarily require that unless it's a very nodular liver where you feel like you didn't get a good picture. But um, certainly that is a way to look for liver cancer. So I can see why people chose that as sort of the next best answer. His hep B DNA was negative, so the genotype won't, you won't be able to get a genotype. And then the hep C resistance test, when you're using this pan-genotypic regimens for genotype 2, you do not need that. So now, what are we going to use for this patient? What are we going to treat him with? So are we going to treat him with Elbisvir, Grisepravir for 12 weeks, GP for 8 weeks, GP for 12 weeks, or um, soft valfatasvir for 12 weeks? I'll go through the brand names for those of you who it was helpful for. So that is um, Zapatier for 12 weeks, Mavira at 8 weeks, Mavira at 12 weeks, Epluza 12 weeks.
Okay, so um, the majority of you got the correct answer. So it is um, a virulent for 12 weeks, and that is because I'll tell you the three, I'll tell you why you can't use the other one. So the Elbitsburg Reseprevir is good for patients who are on dialysis, but it doesn't cover genotype 2. So that's why that one's wrong. That one's not panagenotypic. Um, when you have a cirrhotic, you need to use 12 weeks. So that's why not the eight weeks. And the Apclusa, don't know yet how quite to use it on dialysis. It's not recommended to use if people with creatinine clearance less than 30. So that's, um, so good job. So here's the data for using Mavirat with renal impairment. And um, as you can see, it worked exceptionally well. The study had 82% of the subjects were on dialysis. It, it included all genotypes, um, although the majority were genotype 1. And it included 19% of patients with compensated cirrhosis. So very applicable study to our patient. And you know, we would expect him to be cured. So these are the two options, like I said, for renal patients. Um, this is from the guidelines, and it tells you, you know, kind of what genotype and the duration. The duration depends on whether it's initial treatment or retreatment. Um, so going on, our patients. So we decide to use the Mavirat. He's prescribed it for 12 weeks. Four weeks into treatment, he comes in for labs, and he's having, he's just not feeling well. He's, you know, malaise. Um, can't really point to specifics. He doesn't have any evidence of ascites or edema, um, but he's really not feeling well. You get his labs, and his HCV RNA is not detected, so things are going well there, but his liver enzymes are above their baseline levels, and his bilirubin's up a little bit too. Marion, I'm going to want you to weigh in on this one. Are you, li are you listening? I'm listening. <laughs> The therapy's working, so yeah. It doesn't seem to have decompensation. We just want to be sure. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to have Presumably, them he doesn't have encephalopathy. So then you're worried because he was surface antigen positive at the beginning. Yeah. And has he developed a flare in his hepatitis B? Okay. So, yeah. So I was going to have them vote, but I think she kind of went through it. <laughs> I'm, not, no, I'm sorry, I forgot I was going to have them vote. Well, no, actually, you can, let's have them say what they would do next, and then you can tell us what you would do next. So would you, seeing that, stop his hep C treatment and admit him to the hospital? Would you stop his hep C treatment and order some more labs? Or would you continue his hep C treatment and order some labs? Based on what she's telling you, I guess. And then you can tell us, because I, because it's nerve-wracking to see this, right? His liver's getting worse, and you're trying to make his liver better. Most people, did you agree with that? Yeah, okay, so our expert did. Do you think it's as happy? No, it was okay, I didn't, I didn't wanted you to weigh in. So I agree, I think in this case, and that's what I meant this case to be, was it probably is hep B reactivation. Why is he at risk of hep B reactivation? Because of the surface antigen positive. In those studies that people, um, in those kind of case reports that we saw post-marketing for some of these DAs where some people went into liver failure, some people even needed liver transplant. The group that you worry about most is really the people who are surface antigen positive. There were some cases where the people were just surface antigen negative core antibody positive, um, but the US experience really hasn't panned, that hasn't panned out as much. Um, 
if someone comes in sick and their core antibody positive for hep B, you should consider whether this could be hep B and I would test. But the group that's most at risk is that hep B surface antigen positive people. So I just want you to always remember that, you know, when you're evaluating someone for hep B, you need to know if they have hep B as well. And if they're surface antigen positive, when you treat the hep C, there's that risk of the hep B flaring. Um, and that's, you know, no one knows exactly why that is, but I think some people say when you take away the hep C, some of the immune, you know, some of the immune stimulation that was happening in the liver is lessened and then maybe hep B can reactivate. What's your best theory, Marianne? Do you, why does hep B reactivate something? So there's a nice study by Raimondo in patients who have B and C, mm -hmm. and they followed them for a year doing serial assessment and a third of them, the hep B was active, a third of them, the hep C was active, and a third of them did this. Mm. But it appears that when one is active, the other becomes inactive. And is it that you've removed the, the T cell specific for hepatitis C, and then, but you also have some non-specific cells like NK cells in the liver that may then reactivate the hepatitis B that has been controlled by the inflammation non-specifically. No one has shown that in, in the lab, but I think people are trying to do those studies. And do you treat people who are surface antigen positive Not before you DNA give them? Not if their DNA is negative, I wouldn't. I would monitor them for sure, though. So that, those are the people you really want to monitor. I would actually check a hep B DNA at that week four in addition to the liver test. If they're just core antibody positive and their surface antigen's negative, I'll check liver tests, but not the DNA unless the liver tests are doing something funny. And that's pretty much what's recommended. That is covered in the guidelines if it's, you know, um, if you want to refer to it. And here's sort of an algorithm there that you can have for your reference of how to deal with that. Okay, so let's go through my little algorithm. Um, so again, our case patient, his genotype is two, so we don't need to do resi resistance testing, and we can use one of the two pan-genotypic regimens. He's HIV negative, um, so we don't have to worry about the drug interactions. He does have cirrhosis, so no eight-week regimens. It's compensated, so okay to use PIs. His creatinine clearance was less than 30, so can't use sofosbuvir. He was on a PPI. You want to look up the interactions. Um, and he has cirrhosis, which needs monitoring, even after successful treatment. Marion will get into that. And then the surface antigen positive needs monitoring on treatment. Okay. So I mean, those are my first two cases. So just kind of to summarize that part of it. Um, yeah. Ah. So would you start TAF? At if there was point. evidence of HBV reactivation. Yes. And keep the hep C treatment going. Yes. That's what I do. Yes. Great question. So what, what do we do now that he has, if, you know, you test and it was hep B, yes, you would start treatment. Because that was what, in the, those sort of first cases that were detected, like I said, some of the people went on to even, you know, more fulminant liver failure. And it was because I think at that time people didn't recognize it was hep B reactivation. They thought it was like toxicity from the medications or something. That was when the medications were really new. And um, so I think if you recognize that hep B is reactivated, you should treat. Question is if, you know, before treatment, if he was surface antigen positive but didn't meet the usual requirement for hep B treatment of being a hep B DNA above 20,000. Yeah. yeah, so some people... 
Zinkivir and Tec? No, no, or, or Tenofovir or, or Intecovir. Yeah, you can use any of those, yeah. Yeah, just treat it as Tec food, yeah. So do, if you, um, so many people, if they're gonna initiate Hep C treatment, would start treatment for Hep B. I think if you're not gonna start it, you should closely monitor to see if they then meet criteria. Okay, so I just sort of summarized when to do, but what we talked about, I won't read it. So, let's see how I'm doing on my time. I'll keep going. Um, so, part two. Um, and talk about a few key populations now. So, a 29-year-old Hispanic man with HIV, genotype 3, F2 by Fibrosure, and normal liver labs, um, acquired hep C three years ago. His only risk factor was unprotected sex with two partners. He's treatment naive. Um, like I said, he was F2. His HIV was actually diagnosed eight years ago. So this was someone who got HIV first and then acquired hep C. Um, his HIV RNA was not detected. He's on tenofovir FCC efavirin, so he's on atripla. His other past medical history, he had recent LGV infection um, uh, and um, Hep B DNA is negative. Hey, do you all see a lot of LGV in your, I see a fair amount, yeah. Usually presents as like proctitis. Um, so, you check his formulary and his insurance covers Mavirat for eight weeks. You need to make an adjustment in his regimen for which of the following reasons. So, w w why do you need to make an adjustment? Is it one, eight weeks is not appropriate for patients with HIV. Two, he needs tenofovir switch to TAF. Three, Mavirat should not be administered with efavirenz. Or four, Mavirat does not cover genotype three well. Remember, he's genotype three. Which of those The majority of you got the correct answer. So, for Mavirid, actually, eight weeks is okay for HIV. The only regimen we tend not to shorten for um, HIV patients is Harvoni. And I'll show you that actually the study in HIV patients included eight weeks for non serotics. Um, switching to Nofavir to TAF is probably never a bad idea. Um, but it's not required in this case. There aren't any actual interactions between Tenofovir and Mavirid. And then, um, Mavirid actually does cover, it's pangenotypic, so it definitely gets genotype three. Here are the recommendations for HIV, and essentially I'll just summarize that what it says is you treat just like people who don't have HIV for the most part, with the exception of that, um, the eight, we usually don't use eight weeks of Harvoni. Okay, what about genotype three? Here's the recommendations, um, and I'll talk a bit about genotype three, because I think of the, the um, Genotypes, it is still the hardest to treat with DAAs, although, you know, I think we can do very well for genotype three as well. So without cirrhosis, um, like this patient, you can do eight weeks of Mivirid or 12 weeks of Epclusa. If a patient has cirrhosis, both of them should be 12 weeks. And in this case, I'll talk a little bit about resistance and how it may affect some of these regimens. So this was the study of Mavirat for genotype three in treatment naive patients without cirrhosis. Um, and they compared 
Um, the background kind of at the time, the standard of care was bifosphate to cladosphere, so they gave that for 12 weeks, and then they gave Mavirate for 12 weeks or eight weeks. Remember, these are not cirrhotic patients. You can see the overall cure rates were, were quite similar. Um, but there was this one kind of uh, um, finding related to if a person had some resistance at baseline, whether uh, it may predict if you were going to be a failure, and I'll show you that in a minute. And then there's a similar study in cirrhotics for genotype 3, and it also did very well, Mavira did. So definitely Mavira works well for genotype 3. But this issue of the resistance mutation, so the, if they had this baseline mutation, A30K, um, and got eight weeks, 14 out of 18 people were cured. If they didn't have that mutation, it was 161 out of 163. So it's not clear whether that mutation is actually maybe a problem for this regimen or if it's just, you know, it's pretty small numbers. But I think that's something I want to follow in longer term um, as there's like more real world studies. And I haven't seen an, a large data set since then. I'm hoping maybe there'll be something in ASLD like related to this. But um, I don't do resistance testing before because I don't think we know that it's a real problem, but I think, you know, in the future, if it turned out that that mutation was predictive of not doing quite as well, what would you do different? You might extend to 12 weeks. So I think there might be something you would do differently, so it's just something to watch. But for right now, the re recommendation for genotype 3 for Mavera is not to do resistance testing. Um, for for Clusa, however, um, when kind of uh, cirrhotic patients, what was seen, that people who, the, the small number of people who relapsed, um, which was only like four patients, tended to have this Y93H mutation. So if you had cirrhosis and had this mutation at baseline, you didn't do quite as well. If you don't have cirrhosis, it doesn't seem to be a problem. But in that setting, you may consider adding ribavirin or, or perhaps doing something else. So genotype 3 is still a little tricky. I think we we'll have more real-world data to really, you know, um, decide if these things are necessary to do. What about I, what I was saying with HIV? So here is the data from that Mavira HIV study. And you can see they actually studied it the way that it ended up being approved, which is eight weeks for no cirrhosis, 12 weeks for cirrhosis. And these were the cure rates. Very good. Um, drug interactions are an issue, and this is from the guidelines. I think this table is really good. And the have you all used the Liverpool site? If you just Google Hep C drug interactions, it pops up. There's one for if you Google HIV drug interactions, it also pops up. It's a great website for just click. It, it allows you just to click the different HIV regimen, click the different Hep C met regimen, and as well as other medications, and it'll spit out a personalized. Um, uh, chart for you. But this one is kind of the overall chart, and as you can see, the protease inhibitors, which are regimens with protease inhibitors, which are this end, tend to have, you know, some interactions with um, HIV protease inhibitors, and as well as efavirenz. You can see for GP and efavirenz, well, in that case, it, yeah, the color is, is not good. I think it should be red. <laughs> it should be red. Is it? I don't know if it's right on your screen, but you can look it online. But you should not use um, Avira with Avabrins. And then this is sort of that the Hep drug interactions website I was talking about. There are some main drug classes that tend to be problems that I always look up. I actually always look up for every patient there. I just do this because 
um, if there's any medication I'm not familiar with particularly, just to see, and it'll spit out a nice thing where it'll tell you if there's a potential interaction or no interaction expected. Sometimes I'll just put in all four regimens and the drug that they're on to see which one isn't a problem. <laughs> so you can kind of do it that way too. Um, then what about the TAF, tenofovir issues? So where tenofovir tends to be an issue is more with the NS5A inhibitors, um, lodipasvir and valpatasvir, which can raise the levels of tenofovir in the blood. And um, if particularly if you're using a boosted HIV protease inhibitor with it, that can also raise the levels. You may get into a situation where, you know, tenofovir levels are getting quite high and out of the sort of range where you want them. Um, it's the biggest problem when people who have renal disease so I think if someone has renal disease, though, you really have no excuse to not switch them to TAF anyway. So I would switch those patients to TAF, and that's kind of all I wanted to say. Oh, that's fine. So in this case, his ARVs are changed because of that efavirenz interaction, and um, also because he kind of just wanted to get him off efavirenz. And he was switched to tenofovir, FDC, bactegravir. He's tolerating it well. He receives eight weeks of the GP, and he achieves SVR 12. So True or false, his risk of hep C reinfection is extremely low. No further follow-up testing is recommended. So he's been cured. He needs to test. He doesn't use these IV drugs. He doesn't get tattoos. Okay, oops, sorry, go back. Um, so most people think that's false. So I guess it depends on what you find extremely low. But here, let me show you some of the reinfection numbers. So um, this is reinfection rates after treatment by risk groups. So we have sort of, um, there's two different ways this has been analyzed, two different studies. One is sort of low risk, high risk, co-infection. I think this is probably maybe a, a nicer low-risk MSM, high-risk MSM, low-frequency IDU, high-frequency IDU. So this gives you some sense of how, you know, what the risk might be. This is infections per 100 person years. So, um, but in some of the co-infection studies, reinfection rates were as high as 15% at three years. So people certainly become reinfected. Those are a little bit overblown. Like we did the, the, um, the ACTG study, which looked at this, found a much lower rate. I think it has a lot to do with how people acquired hep C and when they acquired hep C. So if they acquired hep C recently and continue to engage in some of those, you know, risk behaviors that let, that um, put them at risk for acquisition, they're much higher risk. That makes sense, right? So that's why recent high-frequency drug use has a higher risk than someone who stopped using drugs. That's so obvious. but. Um, so I think when you're thinking about who needs to be retested, um, you know, think about that. Like how recently did they get it? And if someone recently acquired it, I definitely retest them at least annually with hep C RNA. Yeah. Do you know if there's any difference um, uh, with irritable acquisition, HIV positive, negative, if you use control for tenofovir? Okay. So people have looked for, for MSM. Yeah. yeah so for for... It, the, 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 rate, the rate for um, HIV-infected MSM acquisition of Pepsi is higher. I don't know 
if it's exclusively has to do with thorough sorting and that they essentially, I think a large part of that is that you, um, HIV infected MSM are having sex with more people who also have hep C just because they're serosorting based on HIV status and that's hard to, I haven't seen any study account for that. But I think theoretically there may be an increased susceptibility because of, you know, immune system deficits in the rectal area compared to someone who's HIV uninfected, but those, I'm just theorizing. So, but definitely the rates are higher of acquisition in HIV infected MSM. When you look at like STI clinics and things like that. Um, Yes, yeah, so people who are reinfected can spontaneously clear just like initial acquisition. Whether it's higher, a better chance of it, I'm not so sure that, that they are more likely to spontaneously clear, but they may. Um, so people will get reinfected. Um, I think if we wanna treat where the epidemic is, you should expect some reinfections. That means you're treating a population that's hard hit by hep C, and um, I don't think it's a reason not to treat it, but I think it's something society needs to accept if we're gonna take on this hep C elimination campaign. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the question was, if, you, if someone gets reinfected, am I having trouble getting the medications from insurance? Now, I've heard a lot about this and concern about it. I personally, in New York, have not yet had a problem. I have not had an insurance company ask. They usually think it's a relapse or it didn't work the first time. I've never had them ask, is this a reinfection? Now, are they gonna get savvy to that and start limiting it? I don't know. Has anybody else had a reinfection treatment turned down? Uh -huh. had a patient, and this wasn't a reinfection, but they didn't draw the genotype on the patient. Right. They were using Uh huh. So my argument was, you don't need the genotype. Oh yeah. Sandy and Pippin, they were debating, you know, the size of the money, and they denied it. They didn't have genotype that same purity study, and she said the patient failed treatment or it's a third oh. So it, it's important for how you treat, right? Because if someone's a new infection, you don't have to treat them with, with Vosevi, with that triple therapy. You can use initial treatment, again, if you know they're a reinfection. So it's an important question from a what to treat them with standpoint. Um, I haven't had insurance get savvy. I wouldn't be surprised if they start. I know some places like Denver, like Colorado, for instance, you only get one treatment. Like no matter what the reason, <laughs> it didn't work, you get reinfected, so you know, here that hasn't been a problem. So, um, but I think, you know, kind of knowing this, you know, you wanna do the testing, but you also wanna really work on harm reduction. Yeah, five minutes, okay. Let me go on to the last case, and then we'll take questions. So the last case is a, a case of um, a hep C and people, a person who injects drugs. So this is a 19 year old woman had a skin and soft tissue infection. Um, she has one partner who injects her. Her family's unaware of her drug addiction. She's seen in the ER and gets discharged with antibiotics. She declines substance abuse treatment referral, but she does take information about a harm reduction center. Um, 
we're fortunate in New York that we have a lot of harm reduction. This was a map. Yeah, a lot of these pictures aren't showing up well, but this is a map of the U.S., and you can see that not everybody has access to harm reduction, for sure. So she again gets seen in urgent care for another skin soft tissue infection, and she's not feeling so well. Provider asks about sharing needles. She denies that, but um, she's been injected in a group setting, and she's learned it was safest to be the first one to use a syringe, but doesn't think it's important to mention. She, she didn't really know it was, you know, sharing other things could also put her at risk for things. So she has an, um, you know, good medical workup, gets the HIV fourth generation test, which is negative. Her hep B surface antibodies positive. She was vaccinated in the past. Her hep C antibodies positive now, and her liver enzymes are a bit normal. This looks like it might be acute hep C. Unfortunately, the urgent care doctor, um, they didn't have that reflex testing, so he called her back to have her get an RNA test, and she feels fine, but um, decides she'll take care of her the next time she sees a doctor. She also knew someone who tried to get treatment, and insurance didn't cover it anyway, so she figured, you know, what's the point? So, um, but this news was upsetting to her, and it prompted her to go to a harm reduction program where she got some, you know, uh, some, a kit to help her prevent reinfections, and they educated her about not only is it the syringe that is of risk, but that some of the uh, cookers and other things. So, um, as you know, the, dem the, the hep C epidemic demographics have changed because of the opioid epidemic and injection drug use, and we now see many more younger people who are, um, I'm just going to skip through some of that stuff, um, but a lot of people still have restrictions on sobriety, and that's part of the reason I think, you know, this epidemic just of hep C will not end unless we start treating people who are actually spreading hep C. So, to that end, all people who inject drugs should be denied hep C treatment. So we're, I'm trying to be devil's advocate here, um, saying this is right to restrict it. All people shouldn't be denied treatment because which of these reasons is true? No treatment data with DAs for people who inject drugs. Reinfection rates are just too high. They have low fibrosis levels, so it doesn't benefit them. What's the reason? I'm just going to skip that. that I, I would say none of the above, because people get benefit in other ways. So and we all agree. OK, so talking about people who inject drugs, I think it's a little important to think about what we mean by that. So there's sort of that whole category of people who have ever injected drugs fit under this umbrella, right? But then there's people who you know, see, are, are in opiate substitution therapy. There are people who aren't. There may be people who are actively using and are in opiate substitution therapy. There are people who use the needle syringe program. So when, when this group is looked at, you know, there sort of a, can be a mixed bag. Um, but a lot of the studies will, will kind of divide into active or recent drug use, and that may be within a month or within a year, depending on the study, um, or, or former, which means they've ceased injecting. So there's been a few randomized clinical trials now looking at treatment, or I should say clinical trials, not randomized. Everybody got treatment. Um, and this one was the, one of the first. It was in an opiate, um, it was treatment-naive, PWIDs who are on opiate agnose therapy for at least three months. So this was done at, uh, at um, drug treatment clinics or addiction treatment centers, opiate substitution treatment centers. And um, you can see very 
high curates. I don't know about this genotype six. I've personally never seen a case of genotype six. I think that was just an anomaly. But this was using um, uh, Albasvir Grzepavir for genotypes one, four, and six, and everybody did well for the most part. This one was, um, and when they looked at this, actually people had a fair amount of illicit drugs in their eutoxes. So people, you know, are at OCST, but they are also using other drugs, and, and still people did well. This was a, a more recent study that looked at active drug users, so people who had injected within the past six months, and they looked kind of measured um, how many, this was self-reported drug use, and you can see there was a lot of um, self-reported, almost 80% of people reported some kind of drug use. Um, and the cure rate in that study was 94%. So again, worked really well. This is actually the adherence. So this, they had a memory, uh, a device that you would, every it was like a blister pack, and every time you took a pill out, it would record it. So um, you can see most people, you know, the, but there were definitely missed doses here, and there were some where people missed more than seven days, and yet um, adherence actually didn't predict cure rates. So there's some forgiveness to this regimen. I wouldn't go around advertising that, but, <laughs> but it, it actually, you know, it's good to find out. Um, and this is actually a meta-analysis looking at, and I know it's too small, but this is a very uh, recent paper, so it's a good one to read, um, just published in Lancet Gastro. And they broke it down by opiate substitution therapy and then um, in recent ID use, so with or without, sorry, so the recent ID use is this line and then opiate substitution therapy is this line. And you can see like depending on the kind of group you are, um, treat, this is treatment completion rates very high. The ITT, it sort of um, includes loss to follow-up. So there is a fair amount of loss to follow-up, but if you look at people who actually completed, the cure rates are very high. And then uh, we already talked about reinfection, so I won't do that again. This was just some data, we just showed it in SHU, kind of saying that you could pre almost predict who people got. This was the phylogenetics, and people got reinfected from um, people they injected near, not a shock. So um, one, I think, strategy that should be tested is treating people with their injection network, kind of, they call it the treat-a-friend approach, and in modeling that's shown that you could see less reinfection. So many drug users don't have like 20 people they inject with, they have one or two. If you can treat, you know, those pairs, um, you can prevent reinfection, makes sense. And this is just proving that, them, um, showing some data, again, from that HEP drug interaction site that these uh, drugs, um, the opiate substitutes don't have much of an interaction. There are some situations where you want to monitor for change in, in uh, effect, um, but most of the drugs we use actually don't interact. You can use them safely. So even if someone's using illicit drugs, you can still use the DA safely. Um, the ma and that was just sort of a summary. This is the last one I really want to end with. So this was a study in Iceland, where Iceland, you know, it's an island. They, they have hep C, but they have uh, 680, you know, they have, I think it was around, they estimate about 800 to 1,000 hep C cases total for the whole, for all of Iceland. So, I mean, that's probably not even, what do, I forget the zip code someone mentioned. <laughs> probably your zip code has more than that. But, um, so they wanted to take an elimination effort from the island. They want to just rid hep C of the island. So they started a very aggressive treatment program. And unlike the United States that restricts treating active drug users, they 
emphasize treating that group as well as prisons and cirrhotics. When they started their treatment campaign, that's who they wanted to treat most urgently. They got 680 people on treatment in a two-year period of their um, 800 to 1,000. And then they monitored um, this uh, addiction hospital. This is sort of the baseline prevalence of hep C at their hospital, which I guess um, is a ma very major addiction hospital in Iceland. 7% of the adult population in Iceland has been admitted to this hospital, which I thought was an interesting statistic. So when they monitored, after they started treatment, they saw the prevalence going down. And this is the, the kind of incident cases. But I think that's a really good sign that treatment as prevention works. You know, they're on an island. It might be easier to do there than here. But um, you know, if you can decrease your background prevalence, you'll also decrease your incidence. So that's the first time I've seen that proven for PWIDs. Um, so I thought that was a really important study. So I just want to conclude um, that you know, DA therapy is safe and effective amongst people who inject drugs. Hep C reinfection will occur. Um, you should, you know, it kind of tells you almost like you're treating the right population, like I said. And um, but testing diagnosis linkage to care is still kind of the major barrier. And then models of where we can bring care to uh, harm reduction centers or drug treatment clinics, and I know someone over there was doing that, I think is really what needs to happen. Because I think you know, it's clear from the cascade when you just refer people, people aren't making it to treatment. So we need to really bring the treatment to people if we want to tackle this. You had a comment? Yeah. Yeah. Slow, actually. <laughs> hmm. Right, yeah. So is there a period of time where there's the viral load, the first time you're seeing the patient, does the viral, actual viral load influence your recommendation to treat? That's question one. And two, if you, so do you, you and, and if you don't know the length of period of time that they've been infected, does that influence when you sort of recommend treatment? I know that active drug use has been studied and has not been shown or uh, to be, a, you know, that they don't get cured. Yeah. So, do, so the do question, you yeah. Kind of so I mean, the, I think you, she's commenting that she's seen a high spontaneous resolution rate amongst her clinic, and um, you know the estimates and studies are usually about twenty-five percent, but there is some variability to that, and you know some see higher up to fifty percent. So, but on, in general, spontaneous res resolutions will happen within six months. It's rare to see them later than that. It could happen, but it's odds are highly against you. So I certainly wouldn't wait longer than six months. The problem with waiting even six months in active drug users is that they often just, they, yeah, they're spread, they may be, you know, infecting other people and they often won't come back. Like you may, you, it may be best to treat people when you have a captive audience. You may lose them somewhere in the system. So that's why I'm now more aggressive about treating people when they're diagnosed, including acute hep C. Uh -huh. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I think, um, you know, that's a conversation I generally have with the patients. The guidelines say they recommend waiting up to three months um, or even up to six months in some cases. But in, in general, I think if your goal is preventing other cases, treating quick, as quickly as possible makes sense. If, um, if that's not as much of a concern, then I think, you know, it's a, just a conversation you can have with the patient. But waiting up to three months for a spontaneous resolution is totally reasonable. Mm -hmm. Wow, lots of questions on this. Okay, keep moving. We'll, t we'll have more time for questions at the end. Yeah. 